0: Chapter 6, in what is perhaps the most familiar of all of the familiar passages we have been looking at in past weeks. It has been said, if you play the word association game and someone says Daniel, the response immediately will be lion's den. That's how familiar this story is to us. But I would ask that you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. It is given to us for our benefit. Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel, with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and create a decree. That whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction? "...that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions?" The king answered and said, "...the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked." Then they answered and said before the king, "...Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king." Or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions?' And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius. And the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let us now ask for God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would go before us by your spirit. That you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would show us your character. That you would teach us to trust you more and more. We ask all this from Jesus and in his name. Amen. There is a story of a famous bishop from what is now western Turkey, the area of Smyrna. His name, Polycarp. He's famous because he is perhaps one of the oldest Christian martyrs. He was captured by the Roman authorities and taken from Turkey to Rome to give account, to give account for the fact that he claimed to be a Christian. No other crime had been committed but that he claimed the name of Christ and refused to worship Caesar. And the story is that he went through from town to town until he finally got to Rome and he was ushered into the arena and he was given, as is often the case, one last chance to recant. He was actually pled with by the Roman authorities. Look at you. You're old. Have have a mind to your old age. Just simply worship Caesar and renounce Christ. And he said, I cannot. And then he was threatened. Well, then I will send animals in to tear you apart limb from limb. polycarp said, I don't fear those who can kill the body. But I serve the one who is in control of the soul. Well, if you are not afraid of beasts, then perhaps we will burn you alive. And he said, Your fire is but for a moment. The fires of hell are for eternity. And he ended with what is perhaps the most famous of quotes. He said, Eighty and six years I have served my Lord, and he has never failed me. How shall I blaspheme him now? And we listen to that story, and we think, What a brave man, Polycarp! What a wonderful Christian martyr. What a man who stands for his convictions. Eighty-six years he has served the Lord. But I would think it would be better for us to recount upon the testimony that the Lord God Himself was with such a man as Polycarp for eighty-six years, every single day, never leaving him, never forsaking him, not in sickness or in health, Not in plenty or in want. Not even at the danger of death. And that story is a bit similar to the story that we have before us, which is perhaps the most famous of all of the biblical martyr stories. It is the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And what I would like us to see this morning is not the bravery of Daniel, though surely there is some. What I would like us to see this morning is the testimony of the Lord God Continually declaring that he is sovereign, that he is in control of all the nations, that he alone saves and delivers. And so then this morning, let us see three things. First, the pressure of the world. This is something that many of you are familiar with, the pressure of the world. And then we will see the prayer life of Daniel, the prayer life of Daniel. And then finally, we will see the preservation by the Lord. So the pressure of the world, the prayer life of Daniel, and the preservation by the Lord. Let's look first, then, at the pressure that Daniel feels from the world. And as we think about it first, I couldn't help but think of that other cliché. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I won't even attempt the French. But you know what this is like. And this is what Daniel experiences. There is a new empire in charge. The Persians are on the throne. And so we would expect it to be completely the same as when Babylon was in charge. Because now Persia is the largest empire in the world, just as previously Babylon was the largest empire in the world. The names have changed Perhaps some of the coins have a different mint on them, but we are still talking about the authority of the kingdom of man. And now on the throne is this man by the name of Darius. Who is this Darius? I think briefly it's important for us to know that this Darius is Cyrus, the Persian. If you look at the end of this chapter, it says that Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. That and there can be translated that is or so to speak. They are the same man. This is the same man that was raised up by God to be a deliverer of his people. The same man who entered in the decree that the Israelites might go home. But now he's simply one more in a line of kings that Daniel has served. And again, Really, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The first thing this kingdom has to do is to set up a bureaucracy. And why? So that it might not suffer loss. See, you thought the only waste that occurred in the world was the stimulus package. No. From government to government, from time immemorial, the wickedness of man shows itself in graft and deceit and theft. And so, an efficient bureaucracy needs to be set up. Where men check up on each other. And so 120 governors or satraps are set up over this kingdom, and then three presidents or prime ministers are set up over them for them to report to, so that there could be no loss. And as has happened, again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Who rises to the top? Who is the hardest worker? Who is the most loyal servant? Who is the best example of a citizen? It's Daniel. Do you notice that? Daniel doesn't complain that he had been promised to be third in the kingdom by the previous king. He doesn't complain that he isn't respected for his age. He doesn't have all these rights. He simply goes about doing what he has been tasked in the best of all possible fashions. You and I can take a lesson from that. That Daniel is known for his loyalty, and he's also known for his honesty. We'll see that in a minute. This chapter here, chapter six, should also remind us of something else that has changed but remains the same. It's very similar to chapter three. If you look through it, even a lot of the language is the same. We talk about a lion's den, but it's actually a lion's pit. It's just like a pit of fire that the three Hebrew youths were to be thrown in. You'll notice there's repetition over and over again about the law of the Medes and the Persians. If you didn't get it the first time, maybe you get it the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time. The kingdom of man takes different shapes and forms, but it doesn't change. And Daniel is the same Daniel. You see, it is his success, it is his loyalty, it is his honesty that makes him a target in verse 3. Everyone else is upset because they can't steal things good and properly because Daniel keeps doing things honestly. They can't take a nap while they're on the clock because Daniel is working. Maybe Maybe you've experienced something like this. You've worked in a plant. Or worked in an office where someone said, would you stop working so hard? You're making us all look bad. Just pretend you're working. This is the nature of man. And they try and find anything they can to charge Daniel with. Now, the amazing thing is, not that they try and find something to charge him with, but that they can't come up with something. Now, we live in an age with bloggers and internet news and Dozens of news channels where it takes somewhere between six and 18 hours to find out the dirty, rotten skeletons in a politician's closet. Isn't that right? How long does it take to find out someone's a tax cheat or to find out that someone's written a bad speech? Instantly, it's found all over the place. Even those who are honest have to explain things away, but not Daniel. They can't find one single thing to charge him with, even though he has served several wicked kings. As a matter of fact, his piety, his regard for the law of God, his character is so bright and shining that they decide to use that against him. The one thing that everybody knows is that Daniel will never forsake the law of his God. Do people know that about you? Is that your testimony in the workplace? That of everything else, they know that you cannot be persuaded to lie, cheat, or steal. You can never be persuaded to gossip. See, that's the testimony of Daniel. And then the classic conflict begins here. You see in verse 6, these presidents and satraps come by agreement to the king, and they say to him. Now, this phrase come to by agreement implies a conspiracy. It's a form of the word that we see in Psalm 2, where the kings of the earth plot together. They come together. But there's, like much of Daniel, there's an element of humor in here. Again, I want to take you back to the long ago days of cartoons, where you would watch a cartoon and a villain would call his henchmen, guys, and they would all come rushing, bumbling in, tumbling over each other. Yes, king. Yes, king. What would you want to do, king? Yes. Oh, no. Pushing, shoving, a cloud of dust. That's what's happening here. They're fumbling and bumbling and coming together in a conspiracy against Daniel. And they have this plan that they ask Daniel, They say, or they ask the king. They say, you know, we think we have a very good idea. We've all agreed, all together. Isn't that right, guys? Oh, yes, all of us. Oh, every single one of us. You bet, boss. All of, every one of us. We've all agreed together. That what you ought to do is pass a law. And for 30 days, nobody can pray to anybody but you, king, because you're the best. We love you. Now, right off, we see that a conspiracy against God must begin with a lie. Have they all agreed? Every one of them? Who's not there? Daniel. And do you notice the king doesn't say this? Daniel is his right-hand man. He's about to promote Daniel to prime minister over everyone, and he is so bound up in the flattery that he doesn't even think to say to himself, what does my right-hand man Daniel say about this? Oh, Daniel? Daniel? No, Daniel's nowhere to be found. You see, because they have drawn the king into their trap. They are running around like chickens with their heads cut off, and now they are filling his head with hot air. And so, this is what happens when the state becomes like a god. Darius, then, I don't even think he sees this as a religious action. I think it's more a political action. An action of unity that we've seen like the big golden stick. Or like the language. Or like the food. It's an idea and a way to unite the empire. And so this leads, inevitably, to attacks on the people of God. You see, this happens not just when our government takes to itself authority that it should not. It happens when social structures do. Or families. You see, whenever there is an attempt to unify people around something that is not the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be sure that attacks will follow upon Christians. You see, Polycarp was attacked because he would not unite around Caesar. Ironically, he was called an atheist because he refused to profess all of the myriads of gods that Rome used to bind together her society. This is the attack that comes from the pressure of the world. But what does Daniel do? He's in a very hard state. this Law is passed, and it's not just any law. It's, as the Bible tells us, a law of the Medes and the Persians. It's a law that can never be repealed, never be undone. Aren't you glad we don't have laws like that? It's as if we would be bound to laws of slavery, or as if we would be bound to other laws that would be unhealthy for us and our republic. But Daniel is faced with a situation where the law cannot be changed and it is clearly a challenge contrary to the law of God. And so we begin then to enter into Daniel's life, his life being a life of prayer. And the first thing that we must understand is that he is tempted. How easy might it be for Daniel to say to himself, well, you know, I have been praying for about 75 years, a month Hiatus certainly won't be the end of the world. Or maybe he would be a little bit more pious and say, well, you know, the heat is on. When the fuzz are out there, you need to lay low. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go find my prayer closet. I'll shut the door and I can pray in my head as easily as I can pray out loud. I'll just pray quietly where no one will see me for 30 days. You see what a temptation that is? You see also that this temptation is not an isolated incident, but it is a part of a concerted strategy by Satan to undermine Daniel. You see, Christians face temptations, similar temptations, today, especially at this time of year, in which we are tempted not to use the phrase, Merry Christmas we are tempted to talk about the winter holidays or to tell our children when they're at school that don't worry that you can't ever sing a Christmas carol or don't worry if you draw a cross and they send you home to get mental health exams. Just just lay low. This is is a really tense time of year. We don't want to ruin the feel-good feeling of Christmas with stories of God and judgment and a baby born to save and to unite man and God. No. Far better to have Frosty. Or well, Rudolph, you know what that nose? It's cute. You see, this is a temptation that we face as Christians. And we must meet that temptation head on, even as Daniel did. Because you see, you can never mistake one battle for the war. There is a war going on, a spiritual war, a battle. And you see, if we mistake the fact that one battle doesn't go so well, we lose sight of who is in charge. This happened to the American troops in World War II. The first major engagement they had with the Germans was in the Battle of Kazarine Pass. Some of you that are World War II historians know how that battle went. Didn't go well for the Americans. And the Germans decided on the... The testimony of this battle that Americans were worthless as fighters, that they could be rolled over any time, that they couldn't be counted on to hold firm. And they learned to their detriment. This was not true in Italy. Not true on D-Day. Not true at Bastogne. No, they had mistaken a battle for the war. And so we must understand that we are in a war and even seeming victory brings other battles. Daniel is tempted. and He is also tried. You see, Daniel has a testimony of character and he can't lay it aside simply because a law has happened. And so what does he do? We see here in verse 10. When he knew the document had been signed, the Bible is very clear. Daniel knew exactly what he was facing. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed. Now, I want you to notice what Daniel did not do. He did not hide, as we've said. But he did not run out into the public square and get a megaphone and say, I've served the king. You should give me my rights. The king and his law is stupid. Even though it was. What he did was exactly what he did the day before, and exactly what he did the week before, and exactly what he did the month before, and exactly what he did the year before. You see, that's another challenge we face as Christians, especially this time of year. We know that now is Christmas, and so we have to put on our very clothing and speech, we have to smile brighter. We can scowl in February. It's dark and cold then anyway. But now we have to be pleasant because now is the time when we can reach people for Jesus. But you see, that's not the way of the Christian either. The Christian life is one of steady commitment to the Lord God in all seasons, using all opportunities. And so Daniel looks out his window and he prays toward Jerusalem. Now, this is no superstition. Although afterwards, and maybe Mr. McCallum will tell us this in his Sunday school class. Muhammad co-opted this tendency of the Jews to pray toward Jerusalem and changed it to Mecca. And turned it into a bit of a superstition. But Daniel is praying toward Jerusalem because he is claiming the promises of God. You see, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 44, we have seen this before. Solomon told the people of God that if they go astray and if they are punished for their covenant breaking, they are to repent and they are to look toward Jerusalem for redemption. To look toward the city of the name of the living God, to pray to him. And you see, this is a way in which prayer is roused up in us. Maybe you pray on your knees. Maybe you pray in your office at home. Or in that nice, comfortable chair by your bed. Or maybe in your living room. You know what I mean. Not because it's magic or because God won't answer your prayers if you're somewhere else. But because that's your praying place. It focuses your mind upon prayer. You see, that's what Daniel's doing here. It's what Calvin calls quickening our souls when we are slow and dull to pray. He prays not only toward Jerusalem, but he does so with discipline and regularity. Look at verse 10. It says, he does this as he had done previously. This was Daniel's pattern. The phrase here means it was an established pattern practice of daniel and this shouldn't surprise us because in verse 16 we see that daniel is one of his nicknames is the man who serves god continually so his prayer life is regular i want you to also notice what his prayer life is like in the midst of this incredible crisis he goes and he gets down on his knees and he prayed and he does what he gives thanks Do you know how hard it is to give thanks when your stomach's in knots? Do you know how hard it is to give thanks when you are perhaps afraid in the dark of the night that God will not hear your prayer, that He will not deliver you, that all of the bad things that you are afraid of will come rushing over you? But you see, Daniel shows us that's when we have to give thanks. When we are afraid our nation is going to go bankrupt, we give thanks to God. When we are afraid our marriage is going to fall apart, we give thanks to God. When we are afraid the illness will not be one we recover from, we give thanks to God. Because that is where we find comfort and hope to get through the darkness. We don't whistle in the dark. We give thanks to God. And you see, his attitude is one of thankfulness. He is not confrontational, but he is firm, firm in what the Lord has given to him. He is reflecting a kind of quiet strength. Do you notice that in the stories of our Lord in the Gospels? There are a few instances where our Lord lets his anger show because it's righteous wrath. But in the most part, he's steady, quiet. Commitment to the righteousness of God and his law, to the righteousness of his cause. Putting up all the time with bumbling apostles to ask dumb questions and people who come up to him and try and trick him to hurt him. People who consider him to be not very important, an agitator, when he's the king of the world. You see, that's the kind of attitude that Daniel has, that our Lord has. Can you reflect that kind of peace in the midst of the world? When the people at your job drive you nuts. When you want to forward 15 emails about everything that is wrong with the world. When your family is driving you bananas. How do you find peace and calm? Well, Daniel shows us that it's through prayer. It's through prayer that we can have in the midst of all of the storm. We don't pretend the storm isn't real. We find calm in prayer. We see that Daniel is tested, that he is tried, but we see also that he is found faithful. You see, he goes and he prays. How often do we get tired of doing the right thing? Have you ever had that? You just get tired that other people pass you by because they're taking a shortcut. You get tired that other kids get things that you don't get. Why? Daniel shows us that even if he had evaded this plot, even if he had gone into his closet, even if he had somehow escaped this plot, do you know what would have happened? They just would have come up with another one. And then what would have happened? He would have given up Standing for God simply to be tested again. Far better to stand where you are than to pretend the tests will stop. Daniel is faithful. He is faithful in this discipline of prayer, even when it would get him into trouble. It is a source of strength to him. Because you see, Daniel knows that prayer really changes things. Have you thought about that? As God is sovereign over the nations... You see, rebellion looks at authority and says, I understand that authority is there and it's powerful, and I'm going to take it. Prayer says, your authority really is of no importance next to the authority of the Lord God. You think you're powerful. You think you can change my life. You think you can make me do things, but you can't. You have no real authority over me except that which is given to you. God is the one who is in control. Do you see now how prayer can lift your spirits? Because God's in control of your job. God's in control of the economy. God's in control of your marriage. God's in control of your health. This is where real comfort is found. Daniel is tested. He's tried. And he's found faithful. And we then see something that we long to see in our own lives. We see then the preservation of Daniel by the Lord. Daniel is in danger. There's no doubt about it. They conspire again. Their conspiracy knows no stopping because now they come along the bumbling cloud of dust and they look in the windows. Maybe they're standing on each other's shoulders. (coughs) Comedy intended. You see, these bunch of fools want to find something that Daniel could be punished for. And they look in and they found it. Aha, he's praying. Now, think about this. What danger to society is this? This is the most honest, most loyal subject. And somehow the kingdom is going to fall apart because he's saying a prayer in his room. This really points out the heart of the matter. And so they go to the king and... You see, they're smart. They may be a bit bumbling, but they're crafty. They don't say, we saw Daniel. They say, oh, king, you remember that law? You know, the law that nobody was supposed to pray? Yeah. You remember what you said you'd do if somebody broke the law? Yeah. Lion's Den? Some of you parents know this, right? One kid comes up, mom, you remember the time when you said? Because you see, they're trying to set you up. That's what they're doing here. And then they spring the trap. Oh, well, Daniel was praying, so guess what? Lion time. They spring it. They do it intentionally. They're crafty. They have no sense of honor. And they say, you know who he is? He's one of those exiles. And they say it like, maybe someone said to you, you know, one of those Bible thumpers. One of those born-agains. One of those reason-for-the-season people. You know. This is how Christians are treated in society. You see, they use it against him. And we see something that's incredibly ironic. Darius is the king, isn't he? Darius has just passed a law that everyone who wants anything has to pray to him. So that presumably it will be granted. Now guess what? He can't get the one thing he wants. Darius becomes the one man who is not free. Look at what they say in verse 12. Oh, didn't you sign that law? Verse 13, you know that law you signed. Again, verse 15, you know that law that the king established. Darius becomes the one who is bound. And he's bound by worry and fear. Because you see, He could have passed a counter edict. We see that later in the chapter. We see that in Esther. But that would make him look bad. Darius is not about to look bad, even for a friend, even for his most efficient bureaucrat. And so he is the only one who is not free in the situation. And so he submits. And Daniel is thrown into the pit, into the lion's den. Now, kings used to do lion for fun kind of like fox hunting in England. And so they would have a large hole and a pit that went down and then a ramp that they would put the lions in. And so what they would do is they drop Daniel down and just so there'd be no mistake, just so nobody could dump down a bucket of food or lower a rope, they put a stone over the hole. Does that sound like anything? And then they seal it so that they know there will be no change. Does that sound like anything? Sounds a lot like Matthew 27 to me. When Pilate said, let's roll a stone in front, seal it, set a watch, so that no one can tamper with it. You see, Daniel is being put to death. He's not being put in danger. He is given up for dead, sealed. He is signed, sealed, and delivered. What do we expect to happen here? Well, if we know our God. We know that Daniel will be delivered, not because Daniel is special, not because God saves every believer who's in trouble, but because right now the name of the living God is on the line. Do you see that? The satraps, the governors, the king are all saying they're in control. They are the ones that you should listen to. The king is the one you should pray to. No other god is of any worth. And God comes down just like he did in chapter 1, just like he did in chapter 2, just like he did in chapter 3, just like he did in chapter 4, and just like he did in chapter 5. And he says, I am the only living God, and you will know it. And he sends his angel who stops the mouths of the lions. That's where that phrase comes from. In Hebrews 11, verse 33. You see, Daniel is down, and we can almost picture in our sanctified imagination, Daniel standing in the lion's den, leaning up against a fuzzy lion, stroking his mane while he talked theology with the angel. And what is Darius like? Here's the king who's in complete control. He has everything. He has dancing girls. He has wine. He has power. What does he do? He can't sleep a wink. He's pacing everywhere. You see, Darius is the man who has everything but God, and he is sleepless. And Daniel has nothing but God. And he's safe and secure. Think about that, kids. When you think your life will just be made just perfect by that perfect present, Or it'll be just perfect if you make that certain sports team. Or if only you could take that vacation. You see, the only place for comfort and safety is with God. And so the morning comes and it's as soon as the crack of dawn is up. This phrase, at the break of day, is actually used twice in the Aramaic. So the idea is, it's like kids on Christmas Day. You know what that's like? When the first sliver of light, they wake everybody up so they can open presents, because technically it's morning. That's what happens. And Darius runs. He's anxious, and he runs. We can almost imagine he makes a scene of himself. Maybe his crown falls off his head. He's so fast to get there, and he says, Daniel, Daniel, are you okay? And Daniel says, I'm fine, King. I've just been down here with the angels. You thought it was a lion's den, it's really an angel's den. I'm fine. Because I haven't done anything. I'm guiltless before God. And you see, what happens is, Daniel says that God is the one who is the judge, not Darius, not the satraps, not anyone else. And this is something we must all remember, because that is who your true judge is. It is not your parents, it is not that nice couple down the street, it is not your boss. It is not this church. It is not me. God is your judge. And if you would be found blameless, if you would be found guiltless, you must have the one who will take your guilt. The only way to be found guiltless is to have Jesus. The only way to be right with God is to take his provision, his gift, and you see, Darius sees that God is the God who delivers. He sees that God is the God who rewards those who trust in Him. you remember that famous verse from Hebrews? That God is the one who is and is the rewarder of those who seek Him. And so Darius, he starts to draw closer to God. He doesn't speak of my God. He speaks of Daniel's God. But he has come to acknowledge That God is the one who is living, verse 26. That he delivers and rescues, verse 27. Now, why is this important? Because perhaps the point of this whole story is not to see if Daniel cracks under pressure. It's not to see if God can deliver or if lions are hungry or not. Because, by the way, we see that they're very hungry. Because when the others are tossed in, they don't even hit the ground and they're eaten. So nobody has been sticking sirloin in there surreptitiously. You see, the whole point of this story is so that Darius and his kingdom know and acknowledge that the Lord God is the living, true God who delivers. Does that give you hope? Because maybe that's the whole purpose that you're in, the fix you're in. So that others will look at you and see that God is the God who rescues and delivers. Maybe not from illness. Maybe not from attacks, but he delivers the soul. And when attacks come, calm is found because he delivers. Is that how you view your life? As an opportunity for to be seen. That's how both Joseph and Mary viewed their lives and all of the turmoil that they had. It was about God being first, about God. Being seen. Remember that Daniel spent his entire life in exile. He never went back to Jerusalem. But that didn't stop him from trusting God every day. From relying upon him. Will you do the same? Let us pray.